In roller derby, holding space is an empowering, often intimidating act of strength and strategy for oneself and or teammates. Holding Space, the podcast, clears the floor for conversations that touch upon race, class, identity, and privilege to amplify stories, build community, and make more connections in the skate world. Expect lots of smart, dope skate people musing about life on and off eight wheels and silliness. Can't forget the silliness that you never knew you needed and won't be able to live without. This is Holding Space with Magical Wheelism. Welcome. What's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of Holding Space with Magical Wheelism. Today's episode is lit. We're talking books. The skater and announcer Rosetta Stone of Sacramento Roller Derby shares her favorite books of 2019 and talks about what it's like to have Asperger's and play roller derby. But first, we have Punk of Arizona Roller Derby joining us to talk about self-publishing her first book last fall. The poetry memoir, The Afterlife, explores grief after the loss of a loved one. She recounts how roller derby aided in her healing and writing, reads a poem for us, and much, much more. Take it away, punk. I skate with Arizona Roller Derby. I spent this last year as secretary of the league, and I was added to our charter for the All-Stars this year and spent most of the year skating with our B team, Rising. Um, And I also skate for uh, the home team, Midnight Storm. And then I also have my like artist persona, stage name, pen name. Um, That is Lexi Lockett. And I've been using that stage name for like 10 years. I started just like as a musician um, playing shows around town and like music that I've written, been in bands. And then I started recently doing poetry and I released a book this year and released it under that name. And then my muggle name day to day is Alexis. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. Okay. I guess I'll let you choose. What do you want to start talking about first? Do you want to talk about your, your book of poetry, your derby and skating history? You choose. I'll start with the book, but it kind of weaves into derby. Sweet. So it'll just kind of hopefully naturally flow. (laughs) Dope. I wrote a book titled The Afterlife and it's kind of like a poetry memoir of my like grief slash healing process after like my first major loss. Oh, I do want to give some like trigger warnings for this. Uh, the content of this book, it is um, about suicide loss. I'll be talking about that throughout, but I'm not going to be like graphic or anything. I'm just mostly focusing on my position as a survivor of suicide loss. And the person that I lost was my boyfriend. And I was the one who found him and called 911 and like went through that whole process. So it was a really hard time in my life, really fucked up time in my life. And I have post-traumatic stress disorder from that. Uh, and like deal with depression and anxiety every day and stuff. This year was the fifth anniversary of uh, his passing and I started writing the book last year and I released it this year on the anniversary, uh, November 5th. (laughs) Thank you for that. How did you decide to release this as a memoir? Did that come first or later or what? how Um, did that work out? I kind of started writing a book on accident because I was just trying to like process 
set my experience and like I feel like I have grown over the last five years for sure from like when it happened to where I'm at now and so just kind of like chronicling that and like and I was uh, I have a lot of memory issues from my PTSD and so a lot of the events that happened that night I blacked out and I always kind of like wondered about like what really happened or like kind of like yearned for like the who was I like I couldn't really pinpoint all the ways that I changed and I was trying to find like answers in there I guess and so for a while there I was contemplating requesting a copy of the police report and I like talked with my counselor about it I talked with some of my friends who have experience in law enforcement and everyone was like "Ooh, probably don't do that Because it's just, you know, it's hard to see information presented in that way because it's very like stark and factual. And like, this was a person that I loved. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Maybe I'll write about it. And I've always like been into poetry and I've written songs since I was a teenager. And so I just kind of started like writing what I could remember. And then it developed from there. And I'm a really big fan of the YouTube channel Button Poetry. And every year they do a chapbook contest, which is like a chapbook is kind of like a poetry novella. It's a short book, usually around like 30 to 40 poems. And so it's a way to get new authors exposure. And so I had started writing and then I was like, wow, I think this is going to be like something. And then I remembered that Button Poetry has a contest. And so I decided to like set that as a goal to finish and submit to the contest. I didn't win, but it was worth it. (laughs) Absolutely. Sometimes it takes some time between finishing a draft and going back to reread it and editing What was that like for you? Man, that was a wild ride. I I think so when I finished like writing the collection I had 32 poems I think and for the contest that I was entering you could only submit 30 and there was like a page uh, limit and stuff so I had like those confines and I mean the writing process was really exhausting so like I definitely had to take a break to just kind of let it sit before I went back to it, you know, because it was just like reopening a wound in a way, but like trying to come at it from a healthy angle. (laughs) So I did a few editing passes myself. And then I actually have a friend that I went to high school with who studied English in college and is like getting their PhD. And I was like, hey, would you have time to edit a poetry book for me? And they agreed. So we went back and forth like three or four times. And I was like so grateful for them because I had like uh, so many qualms about like asking someone to take on the emotional aspect of just like reading it (laughs) because I still like was kind of going back and forth on whether or not I actually wanted to publish it sometimes. Yeah. It has like this sort of conversational tone and sort of like informative aspect to it. So I'm guessing now that you're telling me this, that it was like you sort of conversing with yourself usually. Is that you envisioned oh, when you when you were writing this or and and then bring someone else in that into that process must be really I don't know <laughs> scary like it was scary the ironic thing is that I have been involved in like mental health awareness and suicide prevention since I was a teenager I've been really active in the nonprofit to write love on her arms and like when I was in college I started like um, my university's like U chapter for them which was just like a club on campus and do like awareness events and benefit shows and stuff. So like I already had a lot of language to talk about suicide before I became a survivor of suicide, which is a really weird space to be in. And so a lot of Detroit Love on Our Arms um, like outreach originally was through blogs and through storytelling and like so the founder of that organization Jamie Torkowski is like someone who is very influential in my writing and he definitely has that like conversational style. 
who else are your, what I say, mentors or heroes in poetry or, you know, other poets that you look up to or the writers that you look up to? I actually had like the coolest experiences with one of my favorite poets recently. Their name is Andrea Gibson. They're this like wonderful queer poet and activist and they write some of the most like tender love poems but then like all of these like great political pieces and like think pieces and call to actions and it's it's so beautiful because like all of their love poems are very queer and it's just like oh I love it so much but they also write a lot about their mental health and they've attempted suicide in the past and have like gone to therapy for years and stuff and are very frank and open about that in their poetry and they were actually kind of my gateway into finding the button poetry channel that I was talking about. And so the week that I was releasing my book, Andrea Gibson was doing a show in Phoenix. And I was like, oh my God, we have to go. So me and my best friend and my girlfriend went together and I had just gotten the proof of my book, but I hadn't gotten the copies for like the show that I was doing. But I uh, I had two proof copies. So I brought one with me to the show and we were like at the show. We're literally front row, center stage. Like I could touch the stage. We got nachos and we're like using the stage as our table for the show. It was amazing. I was like weeping and I was just like, I'm having so much fun. And so we waited in line to meet them. And when we got to the front, they were like, oh, front row people. And they were like, I was so comforted that you were eating. It just like made everything seem so chill. And I was like, oh, And then I got to like ramble at them for a moment just about like how much I love their poetry Mm -hmm. and how much it influenced me and helped me through hard times. And I gifted them a copy of my book. And then they asked me to sign it. And I was like, beautiful moment and like actually had them write something for me and and got a quote of theirs tattooed on my body that week too it was the whole thing what's the reception been like for your book everyone has been like so kind and I feel like I mean it's mostly people that I know that have been reading it (laughs) or like I'm able to get such personal um, feedback and um I think a lot of the reason that I wanted to write this was just to help other people remember that they're not alone because grief is so isolating. And that's what like people have been saying, which is like, cool, I did it. And like, I have a friend who said he wanted to like gift a copy to a friend of his who was like dealing with a similar thing. And yeah, that was really the goal. Weave Derby into this for me. Like how has Derby woven itself into your poetry or your poetry into Derby? Yeah, well, it's mostly just about the story. Like I started skating about six months after my boyfriend passed. I was just like really, really, really depressed. I was still in grad school at the time and my professors knew what was going on and they were very gracious and lenient about attendance as long as I like turned things in because I just like was so fatigued and traumatized. And I like just kind of like reached a breaking point where I was just like, I need to do something. I cannot keep just like being a zombie. I like have to get out of bed and do something. (laughs) And so I kind of dabbled with a lot of random things. I have some friends that do like sideshow and circus stuff. So I took some like aerial silk classes, which was like fun, but like not really like I was like really bad at it. I would do like weird like performance art nights, just kind of those I mostly like watched and was like, no, I don't want to do that. And then I happened to a Facebook event for new skater orientation for Arizona Roller Derby. And I was like, oh my God, it's like, whip it. (laughs) And I almost 
just joined Derby when I was in college and undergrad. I got like a flyer for it and it was right after the movie came out and I was obsessed with that movie. I got to see like an early screening of it and have like a t-shirt for it. But I couldn't join in college because I was just like an overachiever and taking too many classes. And like I was the president of a club and had two jobs and it, I was just like, I can't do anything else. So I kind of forgot about it for years. And then I'm like the most depressed I've ever been in my life. And I see a Facebook event that's like, new skater orientation and I look up the place it's like 12 minutes from my house and I was like all right let's see what this is and I had never even seen a vowel I didn't know anything about derby except for what I knew from whip it whip it <laughs> the documentary that is with yeah. it orientation and pardon my French or, or as we lovingly call her Frenchie who's like the matriarch of our league is there and she's just like talking about how amazing roller derby is and like how important Howard she has been from it and the family she found and I was like all right I'm in <laughs> and so I had like two weeks to buy all of my gear and like get my shit ready for practice and I joined Derby in Arizona in June in a warehouse and like man it was the sweatiest I'd ever been had you ever skated before I had roller skated as a child and then when I was like a youth I was very into the movie Brink <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard of it. Oh my God. It's just like, it's one of the like Disney Channel original movies, but it's about like competitive inline skating. And I just like had a crush on the main boy in the movie. <laughs> so I made my parents like, or I asked my parents to like get me rollerblades instead of skates. And then me and my sister would like go to the park by our house and like try and learn tricks. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it had been, like, years since I had seriously skated. I think the last time I would have skated would have been, like, in high school for, like, a youth group Sunday where we went to Skateland or something. <laughs> and I just, like, dove right in. <laughs> How big is AZRD? We're pretty big. I think we have about 150 active members. Our league is broken into, like, three tiers. And then we also have our juniors program. But on the adult side, there's the, um, the new skaters are we call them smashers so that's when you're learning how to skate learning the rules and you're not drafted onto a team yet and then once you're eligible to bout there's three levels you can skate at two there's um, our city teams which are like our home teams that stay in the like greater phoenix area and then we have two of those and then we have four state teams who compete against our other leagues in arizona and there's like a state tournament at the end of the year and then we have our national teams or an a and b team that's pretty big yeah and i had like no so... idea what i was getting into none at really? all <laughs> Is there a scene? Is there like a lot of like love for roller skating or roller derby in, in Phoenix? There's a lot of roller derby in Arizona. AZRD is actually like the second oldest flat track league in the world. And we were like one of the founding WFTDA um, members. We just finished our 16th season. That's great. Mm -hmm. But like just in the Phoenix area, there's AZRD. Um, there's the bank track league that is about as big as us. That is the Derby Dames, Arizona Derby Dames. And then there's like we have USARS leagues. We have just so many. I can't even count. And just in Phoenix. And then uh, Tucson, Arizona has a league, Tucson Roller Derby. There's um, Flagstaff's league is High Altitude Roller Derby and Prescott League, league is um, Northern Arizona Roller Derby. And then there's also Yuma has a league, which is Border City Roller Derby or Roller Girls and then Casa Grande Roller Derby. Wow. So there's so much. <laughs> yeah. Are y'all like, y'all are close enough that you're able to like drive and compete and bout? Yeah, I think the biggest distance 
between leagues is from Tucson to Flagstaff, which is like four and a half hours. That's not bad. Um, yeah. And I mean, I might be wrong because I, I don't think I've actually traveled to everyone yet. But um, yeah, it's usually anywhere from like two to four hours you can compete and we try and like do like double headers so like efficient use of people's time and stuff and then at the end of the year one of the leagues will host and so this is your first year on the charter yeah yeah how was that Oh my goodness, it was so wild. Yeah, I got on the charter at the beginning of the season, but like I jammed. So it was just kind of like, we're going to try and get you some reps at some point and like just like put a toe in the water. And I was like, I'm so excited. Okay. Because this is my like, this was my fourth season. So I just like was not anticipating like any of this really happening so fast, I guess. So last year I skated on our B team, Arizona Rising, for the whole year as a primary jammer. And so this year I did crossover. So I was on the charter. So sometimes I would train with the charter at practice. Most of our practices are mixed, but then would skate in the, like at tournaments with rising, which was really fun. And uh, most of our tournaments we traveled to together. So it was nice because I could just like be there and like watching and studying. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, but I ended up getting to, I played my, I played in four charter games this year. <laughs> Uh, which was so cool. And we ended up doing like a after the playoff invitations, we did Angel City hosted us and Arch Rival. And we'd have like a mini like round robin kind of thing. So those were my first two charter games. <laughs> I had like three jams in each game, maybe. But I was like, I got out of the pack and like scored points. I, no, I know I scored points at playoffs so when I played. I don't, I did score points against Arch Rival. And that was like the most wild thing. Yeah. And then I got, a couple reps in our playoff games again Denver and London which was like so surreal but like second jam I was out I was jamming against Scald Eagle and I was just like what playoffs were in Seattle and that's where my mom and her parents live and she moved up there to help caretake for her parents so it's been recent and so she got to come to the tournament and like see me skate and it was so cool and like the first jam I was out against Denver thank god I had a power jam and they like trusted me and I was like all right all you have to do is get out it's cool and my team all you have to do is get out no big deal against (laughs) acres and like my blockers they did great offense and I got out and I think I scored like six points in that jam hell okay? yeah <laughs> look at you doing the thing yeah, it was, and I was like I can't believe that happened I swear yeah. like, <laughs> I'm not ready for this charter because if anyone would be like all you have to do is get out against Denver <laughs> I'd be like I'd faint <laughs> I'd be like, okay maybe not yeah. me whoa I like, because that just kind of happened into Derby I'm actually like really uneducated about <laughs> I think haters are. <laughs> I've just been learning on the fly. <laughs> so you're like, sure. Yeah. yeah. Like, what's happening? That's, that's probably for the best. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I like it. I'm trying to get out of the habit of having jamnesia where I just like black out or like couldn't tell you anything that happens after the jam. But that's still a thing that happens for me. And so half the time I'm like, I don't even know. I know where my color is. I know where I need to go. And that's all I'm focused on. That's probably for the best. I want to be better about like keeping track of my points and stuff in the middle of the jam and things like that. And I have a hard time with that currently. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's smart. That's why I I can see that. What do you think is the biggest lesson you've learned? Oh, wow. Man, it's been like such a wild year in so many ways. I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to 
work on is like just keep moving forward and like but also maintaining balance so like allowing myself to really feel whatever I'm feeling whether it's happy or sad or anywhere on the spectrum but then like being like okay cool like what's what's the next move like what's the action point from here because I'm like a super emotional person and I can just like get stuck in the emotionality of things (laughs) what are your what are your methods to get you out of those spaces Um, I go to a lot of therapy (laughs) that's good I love it. And you're a therapist um, yourself, aren't you? Um, I'm a music therapist. So yeah, I um I work at an inpatient and uh, rehab and psychiatric hospital, all adults. And I do group, like process groups, just kind of processing through people's like whatever crisis they're going through or the reason that they're trying to get sober and stuff and like work on finding like coping skills and stuff. Well, how do you, how do you integrate music into that? Like what are some of the, the methods that you use? Sometimes it's like using music as like the starting point for like a conversation. So we'll like listen to a specific song and then like talk about how they relate to it or inspires them and the lessons that we can learn from it sometimes we'll like actually like do creative activities do like songwriting or like kind of like song parody so we'll, like take the skeleton of the song but then they'll like change it to be about their experience and things like that you know in those kind of like human like therapeutic fields and professions the risk of burnout is so high how what do you do to treat and protect yourself from that roller derby <laughs> okay <laughs> I have to set like really strong boundaries with myself to like not work like too much overtime and like to really check in with myself like energetically on like what types of groups I'm able to hold space for and things like that. I'm finding I I like a I like a lot of structure. So I try and like really plan out my week and so I can like plan how much energy I have to give where or like physically or mentally, spiritually, emotionally, whatever it may be. So yeah, that's kind of how I've have learned to adapt. And plus I like just do so many things to make sure that I can get to all of it. I just have to be really organized. I still have like a paper planner. In like preparation for our conversation today, I was trying to like think about the ways that poetry and derby, I don't know, parallel each other. I don't write poetry, but I I just, I feel like there's something there's something to how in being a jammer and jamming like and poetry you have to be so deliberate and so quick and so precise with your movements that it kind of like reminded me of that like it it feels does that make like sense like I feel like if I I grew up in derby watching loose chaos jam and if that is not poetry I don't know what is right (laughs) yeah exactly right she is like loose's visual poetry oh my goodness yeah Uh, and and maybe like an eye I'm up bias more like prose. Like I just, you know what I mean? Like the, the, <laughs> the strength and, and, and language and words and, but also the fluidity. Is there any way that while you were writing this, Derby seeped into your writing, you think, or vice versa, any way that your writing has seeped into your derby? <laughs> I have actually started writing a love poem to roller derby, but I haven't finished it yet. Yeah, but I think honestly, my teammates were a lot of my like beta testers. <laughs> I'd be like, how does this sound like after practice? We'll like, you know, hang out in the parking lot, catch up for a bit, and uh, I'll just like ramble and be like, what do you think of this? Like, okay, or like help me like switch words around and things. (laughs) I love that. I asked about the different segments that I might ask you about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of them was called That's My Jam. And <laughs> it's a segment in which you describe a memorable jam for you. And ideally, it would be something or in about that's like, 
YouTubeable or something. Mm-hmm. Cool. Do you have one? Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. It's, so it's actually from Playoffs, the Denver okay. game. Yes. Um, so I don't think they're on YouTube yet, but they should be soon. And I can't wait because I want to watch them. But so it was the second jam that I was out. I was basically like a relief jammer um, and we run a four jammer rotation. So I went in like two or three times each half. I think I blacked out. I don't know. <laughs> But I'm. it was the second jam that I was in and it was when I was jamming against Gold Eagle. And I'm like, okay, well, I did this once and I scored points. So it'll be fine. It doesn't matter that I'm jamming against Gold Eagle right now. I was really trying to like turn up the chill. That's like a thing that me and my teammates like to say to each other when we get too hype. It's like, I just need you to turn up the chill a little. I love that. <laughs> yeah. So I was really trying to do that. And the jam starts called good lead. I was like, cool, I know what to do. I'm going to take off the star. I passed it. And I think I passed it to Decker, but that might have been a different jam. But anyway, so I get with the rest of the blockers and I was like, cool, I am not a primary blocker. I'm going to about to have to block Scald Eagle. This is fine and normal. And we get set up and Denver is like getting their O set up and Scald is coming around the turn. And I see her look at me and I know. I was like, she's going to hit me because she knows that I just passed the star and I'm not a primary blocker. And that's a smart thing to do. So I brace myself. I like say my goodbyes. <laughs> you know what I keep imagining like as you're talking, you know, like in the movies when they go like, ah! yeah. <laughs> like you might be wondering how I got in this position. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> And I was like, well, if this is how it ends, this is a pretty good way to go. And Skull comes up and she hits me and like, I stumble a little bit, but I don't fall. But And I like, don't stop her, but I like slow her for like half a second, like a tenth of a second. But it's enough so that my teammates can reform in front of her. So I'm like, cool, cool, cool. Haven't fucked this up yet. And I'm able to like reform. And there was like a solid few seconds where Choki Latte and I were walking Skull Eagle together. And I was like, I cannot believe this is happening. <laughs> and yeah, it was... Um, magical moment I don't remember how that jam ended but I remember that and like I watched it on film I think and it was like so quick but it was like I have such detailed memory of those moments (laughs) wow congrats that's quite a that's quite a feat do you have any advice for someone who is contemplating publishing their own book I say do it like I have a true love for like storytelling in any form and the beauty of storytelling is that like nobody's going to tell the same story the same way because everybody has their perspectives and their life experiences that all led up to how they experience life and then communicate that to others. So I feel like the more we're able to like have access to each other's stories and like be able to, even though you're like reading, it's still like a community building thing where it's just expanding your worldview, expanding your understanding of the world and of other people. And I think everybody's story is important. So publish that book. (laughs) Heck yeah. Is there anything you wish someone had told you about Derby or something, some advice that you can impart about Derby to someone? Oh, I don't know that I wish that I had had someone had told me anything because it's been like the best surprise. (laughs) I had no idea going in that I would find so much love for the sport. I've never been athletic. I mean, I played basketball in middle school, but then I stopped growing and I'm 5'3", so I was like, this is not fun anymore. (laughs) And I like really dove into my artistic side for a really, really long time until basically I started Derby four years ago, four and a half years ago. But I think for people that are joining or maybe new skaters, it would just be to, you know, define your Derby journey for yourself. Like whatever position you want to play or how the level that you want to play at, like, yes, it's a team sport, but 
you're an individual and you're um, investing your time and your money and your body to this really intense thing. So like make it what you want it to be. Is there anything that you love most about Derby? I really love jamming. <laughs> like I love it so much. And I like, I know like it's, a, it's like such a popular thing. It seems for people to be like, Oh, I hate jamming. I never jam. And I'm just like, I will take the star every time. Like what I will is it about it. I don't care. <laughs> I just I like get into like such a zen space where it's just like I try to describe it as like if you're in like a spy movie and there's a car chase and the car is really high tech and they're like it shows them like weaving in and out of traffic and they're like pressing buttons and like there's like so calm the whole time though and that's how I feel when I'm jamming (laughs) that's so cool (laughs) (laughs) I have all these like little mantras that my friend like my teammates and I will like write it on sharpie on our bodies for each other and so I have like my mantras and most of them are from songs that that I'll use to like keep myself focused but like this year has been like I think by the end of this year I played with I've played derby against five different countries in the last two years and like so many different states I don't even know and against people that are just derby legends derby heroes in charter games and that roller con and stuff do you have a preferred self-care tip yeah I think the important part of self-care is to do the practical things I love that self-care is something that is like talked about as like a buzz topic is a word that people are starting to recognize but I have a hard time with the commercialization of it where it's just like oh self-care and taking a bubble bath don't get me wrong I love a good bath but my self-care is like making sure I like get my chores done and like have healthy food for the week and have rest I'm really bad about giving myself time to rest (laughs) and so like I have to like hibernate like sometimes where I'm just like okay today my phone is going off I'm not really gonna leave the house unless I want to or if it's like a chore that I need to get done I have to be kind of strict with that which like means sometimes I have to like say no to like people that I want to see or like things that I want to do because in the long run it just like will like mess up my energy level so much and I won't I'll get behind and everything else yeah just like listen to your body give yourself a little grace is there anything you want to hold space for be it an issue a cause something that you want to inform the community about yeah um so so like since I've done a lot of like suicide prevention has been a lot of stuff that's a part of my life. So in addition, like I still support Troy Levener Arms. I also um, do some of like American Foundation for Suicide Prevention walks and stuff. And I think something that kind of applies to roller derby community is just the way that we use language and how that informs perceptions and stigmas surrounding mental health and suicide awareness. And I have such a hard time because I know that like derby started as like a counterculture kind of thing. So a lot of leagues, it was like common to have like the trackside seating be like suicide seats and things like that. And I didn't really have any idea until I was like thrown in and I was, oh, wow, I really, really, really hate this. So I've been like really trying to gently encourage people to consider like their language around that. Like we used to do like there's a popular like French drill, people that play basketball or that's the first time I heard it. We'll call suicides because like you're supposed to run so many times you want to die it's like horrible or like like learn this as a child and then Yikes. yeah i <laughs> i had totally forgotten about that and, until you mentioned it again but yuck, yuck i can't believe the way that we we kind of normalize these topics you know and so we actually used to do that drill or call we still do that drill. we used to call it that and i kind of didn't know what to do and so i ended up just kind of pulling my coach aside after a practice because i just 
had reached a point where I was like, I cannot keep doing this drill. And like, it's just horrible. And I was like, hey, can we maybe try and call that drill anything else? Because I personally am a survivor of suicide loss. And I know I'm not the only person in this league because other people have told me. And it's just like an important mental health issue and not something I think we should trivialize. Um, And the coaching staff was very receptive to that. It immediately changed, trickled down to all of all of the levels, all the practices throughout the week. And I was very encouraged by that. Good. In our, you know, I talked beforehand, you'd also mentioned like the term derby widows. Yeah. Could you Um, extrapolate a little on that too? Sure. I, I wrote a poem. There's a poem in my book about how I struggle with like, because there's not a language for losing a partner that you're not married to. My boyfriend and I were not married when he died. I, in the technical sense of the word, am not a widow, but like, that's kind of what it feels like. And, but I, out of respect for people who like made that commitment to others were like legally or spiritually, whatever worked for them married. I don't tend to call myself that. I think the first time I heard the phrase derby widow was my first roller con maybe. They do like a meetup for the spouses that come. And I just, it seems so callous because I just like thought about how painful my experience it was and how magnified it must be when you're married to someone and like these and then like somehow Derby Widow was just a funny kitschy thing because you miss your partner while they're at practice. (laughs) Callous is the perfect term for it. I can't even like now that we're talking about it and thinking about it I can't believe how like these really painful concepts kind of just seep into our language and get trivialized. It's so strange. It's just like you don't know until you know. (laughs) Absolutely. And then once you know, there's no way to take it back. Last but not least, do you have an MVP? That's my mama. My mom is so cool. Everyone like knows her as Mama Punk. She's just like the most supportive, kind, loving person. She like comes to all of my games. And then ever since she moved, she'll like text me every game day. Let's go punk. And like, I got her a shirt that has uh, for my home team that has my name or has my number and it says Mama Punk on it um she like wore that to playoffs (laughs) she's just always been so supportive and encouraging so good about i'm one of four so like and me and all of my siblings are very different and she like does such a good job of letting just like all of us like be ourselves (laughs) and it's wonderful mama punk you are the mvp okay and so are you still up for reading a poem i'll just do one because i feel like it kind of it sums things up pretty well (laughs) sweet okay this is from my book it's titled question of all of the what ifs all of the questions the one I keep coming back to is what is it like to live without mental illness to exist in a world where your brain is on your side the more I reflect on these questions the more it seems like there isn't anyone that could truthfully answer it we all have something in our past that we carry with us that created a stark contrast between a before and an after What if we shined a light on this darkness? What if we were able to talk about it? What if we destroyed the phrase, I'm fine, allowing honest answers to the question, how are you? How are you? I'm struggling. How are you? I can't get out of bed. How are you? The anxiety is eating me alive. How are you? I'd rather be dead. As much as I'd love to imagine a reality without mental illness, the more important question to me now are what are we going to do about it? How are we going to help each other? 
what can we do to create an environment where people talk about mental health before hospital stays and before obituaries? How can we challenge our culture to value health over productivity? How many afters will be created before enough is enough? The end. Thank you overall for, for sharing this with us, for doing this for yourself and, you know, creating a, a text for yourself, but also deciding to put it together and share it with the world. Thank you. Yeah. Thank Punk. you for, for letting me talk about it. So yeah, I, uh, I'm going to do some plugs now. <laughs> Dope, do it. Yeah. But the, so the book is called The Afterlife and released under Lexi Lockett. It is available on Amazon. And then I have a uh, poetry Instagram where I just like kind of post first drafts and then like updates about shows and things. And that's Poetry with Lexi. And it's L-E-X-I, how I spell Lexi. We met at RollerCon, right? Yeah, we met at RollerCon this year at the announcing booth. That is true. You took me under your wing as the skills announcer <laughs> that you are and showed me all your ways. And then we promptly followed each other on social media and have kept it up ever since. Totally. Why don't you kick us off with giving us your derby background and how long you've been skating and what you do and all of the good stuff? Okay. Well, I'm Rosetta Stone and I started in 2015 with the league formerly known as Sac City Rollers because Sacramento had two leagues. Now we're just Sacramento Roller Derby. So I didn't really have any skating experience. I jumped in on the, like, we called it Rec League, but like the newbie class, Derby 101. I've been skating since. I am much better than when I started. I was kind of a slow learner, so I took up announcing probably within the same year that I started skating, just because it was like, it's going to be a while before I really get to play, but I want to be able to do something. And we had like a a holiday tournament and they said they needed announcers so I thought yeah let's do it so right now I'm a skater I'm the head announcer at Sacramento Roller Derby which just means I put people in the schedule for our games and I try to create training opportunities for people to learn so I do I don't know. I feel like I do a little bit of everything, but oh yeah, I'm coaching now too. I coach our newbies and anyone who's interested in hearing what I have to say, I guess. So that's how I came to roller derby also, right? Yeah. How did you come to roller derby? How did you hear about it? One of my friends, my friend Kira, probably back in 2012, did the newbie program at Rap City and told me all about it. And that got me really interested, but it was a few years before I felt like I was in a position to actually try it out because I was like, what was I doing? I was working as a teacher and I was in grad school and I was like, wow, this is too much. So I shelved that idea. And then when I was ready, I just searched online for like Sacramento Roller Derby and then I found Sac City Rollers and went to their new skater program and here I am today. How big is Sacramento Derby? Good question. I'd say we have maybe 80 active adult skaters but we also have a really big junior program. We have an, an A and B team with our juniors and like a 
pretty full class of like new junior skaters. So there's probably almost as many junior skaters as adult skaters in Sacramento. And what does that translate in terms cool. of that is that's awesome. And what does that translate to in terms of like intra league teams or charter teams and travel teams? How many do you all have? of oh, those? So we have our charter, of course, and we have a B team and our C team for the adults. And we sort of when last year was our first year of Sacramento Roller Derby, and because we had a lot of people, we also had like upper level B teams. So if we were playing like Angel City's B team, we'd send like the mixed A B team. So we have three and a half ish teams, and we also have three home teams when we play ourselves. So that's a lot of fun too. And this was the first time I'd done home teams because with Sac City Rollers, they didn't have home teams when I started there. So that's pretty fun. That's great. And what are you on? I'm on Sacramento's B team. And I'm also the captain of one of our home teams, Team Blue Steel. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty awesome. How well known is roller derby and the roller derby and like skating in Sacramento, would you say? It's hard to say. I feel like a lot of people have heard of us, but that doesn't necessarily translate into like support. We do have more than one roller rink in Sacramento. So like there's definitely a wider skating scene than just roller derby. So So there's a market. Yeah, we have have the opportunity for more outreach definitely but i don't know we we just haven't found the right angle or we don't know the right people i'm not sure but we can get pretty decent crowd at our games thank you again for coming on i've been wanting to like do an episode about like books and literature and and reading and all that sort of thing and you know how to make it sort of apply what derby was kind of like that missing sort of piece and then i don't know out of nowhere it kind of just clicked i was like i gotta reach out to rosetta and i gotta i want to talk to her this would be perfect because like i told you i think that you're like the biggest bibliophile that I follow that are skaters and I love that about you I love that I love that you document the books that you've taken out of the library or the books that you're reading and that you are just I don't know you, you can really tell that it that it's definitely a love of yours my question to you is well first of all how many books did you read this year so as I mentioned to you before we started I write a list every year of the books I read and I've been doing this I started when I was in college, just kind of out of curiosity and like, where does my time go? Uh, So on my blog, you can actually see all my book lists. But so far this year, I have read 63 books. Hold up. So what sign are you, by the way? What sign am I? Yes. Like my zodiac? Yes. Uh, Taurus. Because that sounds like some frugal behavior. Let me tell you. (laughs) (laughs) That really appeals to the Virgo in me. (laughs) Like the list making and the the documentation. (laughs) But I'll take your word for it. Uh, Yeah, I was like, oh, that's... that's I have several ongoing consecutive lists um, of books. (laughs) You know, books that I've completed, books that I want to buy. Like I have a wish list and I have a library hold list. And so they all kind of inform Oh, yeah, my wish list is... (laughs) of control they're probably all going to come in at the same time too isn't that the worst i never know how to manage that i have another list on the on the books app on like libby is the app that the new york public library oh yeah like the overdrive one yes and so all of the audiobooks come in at once so because i sort of usually (laughs) like walk to work and it's like uh (laughs) it's like it's too overwhelming yeah it's it's impossible (laughs) 
It really is. And of course, I started like five books at once. And, you know, and my biggest dilemma when I travel is which book to take with me. That's, oh my goodness. That's me. almost, that start, that headache starts as soon as I buy my plane ticket. Let me tell you. Well, that's why I love having an e-reader because like we just went on vacation to Peru as I know, you know, but I've got like hundreds of books with me, so I don't have to worry about it. I'm just like, well. I finish this book there's a whole bunch on here that I haven't read yet that is see that's a I feel so that's like the con you know how like right now on Twitter the controversial opinions are making the round <laughs> that might be my controversial opinion e-reader or no e-reader no e-reader that's your e- controversial opinion maybe no because like on the one hand like I feel like especially when it's vacation I part of being on vacation to me is the luxury of having a book and like the lug you know like mm-hmm. tactile of a book I because I'm in grad school right so I do quite a bit of online reading as it is so when I'm like off the clock so to speak I want to highlight and like bookmark and but like you know like actually do it because I know that those are terms on e-readers too so anyway I yeah so I'm but but the convenience of it and the ability to have like a a slew of other options with you is very very tempting the jury's still I I read a I get a mix of ebooks and paper books, so it's not a big burden for me to be like, oh no, only ebooks on vacation, because I get plenty of paper books from the library too, which is partly motivated by the fact that I like to get out of the house and have an excuse to go to the library. So my thing lately is I love to ride my bike to the library, so I always try to make sure I have some physical books in my whole queue. Uh, you warm weather people. Such oh, yeah. And I, you live in California, though. <laughs> so nice. <laughs> I see everyone with their rollouts and their <laughs> their uh, outdoor outdoorsiness this time of year. And I'm just so, so envious. I wish. Anyway. Mm-hmm. But, um, but so... And for people who like maybe can't find time to read or have trouble finding time to read, when would you say that you do most of your your reading for fun? Because I'm sure you do a lot of it for work too. I do read a fair bit for work since I'm an editor. I don't know. I always like to read before bed, obviously, although it's that can be hard because if you're sleepy, you're not going to read that much. I think I like to read on my lunch, on my lunch break. That's a good time. Or I don't know, just... Literally any time. One thing I started doing, or I realized a while ago, is I was just frittering away tons of time on social media. And so I started being like, go do literally anything else. Like, So if I'm just like scrolling infinitely, I'm like, go read a book. Stop. There's nothing you need here. Because it just, I don't know, I think it's mentally not good to get caught in the infinite scroll so if i catch myself doing that i'll go read or do something instead that awareness is so good and so crucial very hard to develop as well but it makes a big difference i agree so you mentioned your blog earlier it's called digital manticore what does digital manticore mean and how did it get started I think I actually started that blog name in a class I was taking. Oh, I got my, I was doing my master's degree in library and information science, and I took a couple of classes by like making websites. And so one of, in one of the classes I had to make websites, so I was like, I don't know, 
digital manticore. And I just, because manticores are kind of a funny mythical animal and they eat people. And I was like, well, this is online, so it's a digital manticore. And then I just put the tagline of eating up information because it's kind of what I do. I really, I'm kind of sad that blogs are not as prevalent as they used to be, including myself. I used to have one and it just kind of like tapered off, but so it goes. Uh, this year I started blogging more because I've had the blog for a while, but don't really post that much. And then I think in the summer I started, I decided I would just do a weekly like write-up of my life. And I wish more people did blogging instead of just like firing off half-cocked thoughts into Twitter or whatever. And I also don't know if you, <laughs> I don't appreciate you ta- attacking me on my own podcast. Okay. <laughs> How dare I come into your podcast? How dare you? Blocked and reported. <laughs> <laughs> Attacked. <laughs> Seen. It was a good chat while it lasted. <laughs> I know. And, and that was Rosetta Stone. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> you did what you had to do. I know. <laughs> That's that. Anyway, no. So, okay, let's moving on to the the matter at hand. Your top five books of 2019, what would they be? This is a hard question, but I did plan ahead. So I think one of my favorite books so far, this is a nonfiction book, is um, Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And I know you also wanted to bring books back to Roller Derby a little bit, so I think this one we can do it. So the author, she looks at, she basically says there's a huge gap in data available about women in the world. So like, uh, and she has just tons and tons of examples. So cars are an example. Most crash test dummies are man-sized, or even if they're smaller for women, they don't have breasts, you know? Mm. So women are way more likely to die in a car accident because cars aren't designed for women and the seatbelt will choke you. (laughs) And it's pretty horrifying. So the whole book is this kind of information about like the world is designed for men and what the fuck. Yeah. And and who is yeah, that author? And when you look at it, her name is Caroline Criado Perez. Cool. And you can follow her on Twitter too. And she also does a big chapter about like bathrooms and how, you know, the women's restroom line is always twice as long because we, we allocate the same amount of bathroom space to men and women, even though we know women need more time in the bathroom. So. It's just a really good book for making you aware of like all the little inequalities that we're dealing with constantly that are making us tired and in many cases, literally unsafe. Mm. So that, I mean, it's kind of painful to read just because you're like, wow, life is awful in some ways, but it's really good information. And I think to bring it back to roller derby, like to be in a women's sport. And in a community of women, it's really valuable to be aware of like, you know, what kind of stuff we need to overcome and like how we can, what we need to do to support each other more effectively and basically get each other through existence. You know, I read a, it's a book called Playing While White. And Mm -hmm. here's this whole book about like white privilege in sports. And only one chapter out of like maybe 12 was about women's sports. And the whole tenor of the chapter was about how basically... 
any kind of like sports media or even studies of sports media that exist are so scant in comparison to to men's sports and men's sports coverage. And part of it was also was not only because of just the assumption that women wouldn't be sports consumers, but the or players, athletes, but that you know it that women's sports was kind of developed for the white male cis heterosexual um, gaze. That's so interesting. It's interesting, but also unsurprising that that exists right. in other facets of life, and basically probably all facets of life. Yeah, I mean, that book doesn't even look at the angle of like women of color very much, but mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of implied with some of it. So yeah, being a woman in the world is difficult, and that book takes us takes us through it. Okay, what else did I read that was good? So another nonfiction book I really enjoyed in terms of like a book that stayed with me is called Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. And it is by Robin Wall Kimmerer. And so the author is an Indigenous woman and an ecologist. And it's kind of like a memoir, kind of like an essay collection. And she she talks about sort of indigenous views on plants and the environment and how we can respect nature and each other. And it sounds a little corny to describe it, I guess, but just the concept stayed with me. And she has this concept she calls the honorable harvest, where it's like you don't take the first thing you see. You always leave some for whoever comes after you. You respectfully use whatever you take from nature. And I just, I've been feeling a lot of like climate anxiety lately. So it was really powerful to me to read like, you know, how can we move through the world in a more respectful way, both of the environment and of each other? How do you think that would transfer or translate into Derby? We could definitely think more about how as like leagues or as communities, we integrate with what's around us and our, you know, community that's already there. I know in Sacramento, we do, we are a nonprofit, so we emphasize, you know, helping our community and supporting our community. So something I'm curious about is like, you know, what could, what more could we do for the indigenous people of our area? And, you know, that's obviously a very big and difficult question. And, you know, what could we do for our environment? And how can we, as skaters, maybe have less of an impact? And that might be things like sharing used gear and not just buying more wheels because you can buy more wheels, you know, like really thinking about the impact of your choices. And also I'm I'm assuming I haven't read the book, but also just what kind of world and planet and sport we're leaving for junior derby players that will hopefully continue yeah. on in the sport, right? And future of future derby players too. Yeah. Like who, you know, what are you leaving for people who come after you? And that's something I try to think about a lot when I'm helping new announcers or coaching, like, you know, am I, am I leaving something worthwhile for whoever is here after me? Nice. Thank you. Okay. Book number three. Book number three. Uh, let's see. One book. Here's a novel I really liked. Is This book is called Semiosis, and the author is Sue Burke. This is a science fiction novel. It's like a first contact kind of story. So there's people from Earth who go to another planet, but the planet has sentient plants which is kind of a weird concept. I don't think I've seen that in science fiction before. And so the colonists there basically end up in the symbiotic relationship with this sentient plant. I don't know. It's just so, it's again, so hard to describe books in a way that is compelling. All good. (laughs) 
but it's just an interesting concept and I love science fiction and it was kind of a, a different sort of first contact kind of story. So that's one I recommend. Sweet. So book number four. Another novel I really like this year is called This Is How You Lose the Time War. Mm-hmm. It's by two authors, Amala Mukhtar and Max Gladstone. And so this book is written as a series of letters between two uh, spies who are on opposite sides of the time war. And even though they're enemy operatives, they start leaving each other like these coded message hidden throughout the timeline. And it's just a really cool, it's basically a time traveling lesbians love story, which, you know, so hot. He doesn't right now, love that. <laughs> <laughs> say no more. Uh, it's sold. <laughs> say no more. Time traveling lesbians is 2019's best genre. <laughs> So, so that was a really cool one just in terms of the creativity of like how they were sending messages to each other through time. Like they're leaving coded messages in tree rings and they're like cultivating the tree as it grows up, you know, just like weird ideas like that. And I love seeing, you know, novel concepts in fiction. That's one of the best things about it. So that's why I like that one. Cool. And so does it start out in the present or in the future? I think this is true. It starts, it's just one of those books that spans like all eras at once. It's like alternate timeline kind of thing. So it just, it just starts when it starts. It's not really, they describe the, the characters as like moving backwards and forwards through time. So it's not really about like when they are necessarily. It's more just like where they are in relationship to each other. And last but not least, also, are you ranking these or are these like just your five? No. Okay. Just just five. It's hard to put books in an order like that because you can't really compare in a way. Well, the way that I do it is their like impact on me, right? Like how profound of a reaction they elicit. But no, I agree. It's hard to compare two books side to side on their content. Totally. So my fifth pick, is it's called The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls and is by Mona El-Tahawi and mm. she's a feminist. So she organized, it's kind of a, it's a book about feminist activism basically and she organizes it into the seven sins in quotes that women and girls should be committing to rage against the patriarchy basically. That's great. Um, and it, it's really powerfully written. It's really strong and it's just such a good read and I actually got one of my male co-workers to read it because he has a he has a daughter and I mentioned it and he told me he read it and he's like it's very hard to read as a man and I'm like good mm. <laughs> you should be challenged <laughs> but it, one of the best things that saves me from the book is the author she writes about all the violence that men commit against women and she says, you know, what if women started fighting back? And what if there was a group of women and they said, we're going to kill five men every day until the violence stopped. And then they just kept increasing it. And how many men would we have to kill every day before men as a group were like, okay, we'll stop killing women. You know, like what, like what would it take to make that violence stop? And I thought that was a really powerful question because... You know, it's not academic women. Yeah, we just take it for granted. Just women die every day at the hands of men. And we're like, well, what are you going to do? So 
to reverse that question and be like, what if we killed men? Yeah. And I'm like, well, make a good point. <laughs> so that was a really powerful book. I really like that list. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, of course. Was that like three nonfiction or th- and two fiction that you gave me? Yeah, I think so. I think that a nonfiction book kind of stay with me more than fiction books, even though I probably read more fiction than nonfiction. But, you know, sometimes the ideas you get from a nonfiction book just sit with you more. I feel like they go to different places, you know? The nonfiction books seem to stay more front of mind, whereas the fiction ones you kind of just like totally absorb, you know? <laughs> and It's like the fiction is here for your emotions mm-hmm. in a way to mm-hmm. just kind of feel, feel something. But the nonfiction, <laughs> like you're right. Yeah. No. Well, and especially, I don't know about you, but for me, I tend to gravitate to books that are more sort of performance development, if that makes sense, or like personal development. That's that's such a loaded mm-hmm. term, but I... It's okay. Yeah, no, but I, I, you know, I, again, it might just be the Virgo in me, but I'm always like interested in best practices to say something, you know, to like put it some way, be them, be it personally or societally and just approach a nonfiction book differently too. Um, Yeah, I I do think, you know, even if a book doesn't like have best practices for us, like if you're reading and you're not kind of taking something away from it either you're rethinking something or it makes you want to do something like sure i don't want to say you're doing it wrong that's a little stronger of an opinion than i want to express but like you know books should make you want to do something different if they're good books you know if there was like the the reading equivalent to being a messy eater that'd be me <laughs> i'm just <laughs> kind of like i have an audiobook i have a school book i have a personal book that i'm reading so i'm kind of all over the place but on the other hand you know i i like that i feel like it's also almost like your brain is engaging in conversation and dialogue with the book so. yeah so I read, um, so the, my top, top, top book of the year was probably uh, The Body is Not an Apology by Sonia Renee Taylor. And it's about just radical body acceptance and body love and just how, again, you might not, a book, you know, you, sometimes you, you'll need a book to help you rethink the way that society's, con- you know, conditioned you to feel one way about yourself or or about the way that you look at things in order to like kind of address those those processes and so it was a very uplifting book that sounds interesting it's great uh and then there is stacy abrams's like memoir and it was just it was a but but she's changed the title since like in the second you know um edition of it they they changed the title and i know this because i accidentally bought it <laughs> thinking that it was a new book from her and then i open it and i'm like this sounds really familiar <laughs> like i have to return it <laughs> it's like i i i'm good so but it, it's just basically her 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 rise and her story from being a you know poor black woman and just you know growing up in Mississippi and being incredibly intelligent and but also having to deal with you know vestiges of of 
poverty and oppression and right. it's got to be so hard but she's so it's hard to be a white woman so hard to be a black woman and yeah no and I it's just like people imagine people just underestimating what you're capable of or how you approach things or and so it was it, it was written so well and it was just such a it was like a conversation with her and I really enjoyed it that's definitely a subgenre of nonfiction that I love it's just like biographies and autobiographies that especially people that like you you notice them from afar but you you always wonder about their lives and how they came to be so that was really cool well you're just very like I can tell you're just someone who's interested in people so it makes complete sense to me yes that, that would be your genre for sure. And then The Body Keeps Score, which I'm, I'll confess that I haven't completely finished, but so far it like knocked me off my seat. It's uh, a book about the way that the brain and the body react to trauma. And I was going to say process, but it's quite the opposite, actually. The brain doesn't really process trauma and it keeps it stored. And the effects of it has really, really been, it's been really interesting to, to read about it. I feel it's when you, when you're someone that has like mental health issues or has, has experienced trauma, you kind of just go from your condition and your experience and don't really understand the medical explanation for things. And so to yeah, be able to read this book. It, not outside of it. Exactly. Exactly. And to have like the context for it and to understand, for instance, what I was, when I had like therapy sessions, I would, I'd kind of be like, <laughs> so my therapist would be so funny. I'd be like, how are you going to document this session? <laughs> like, what are your notes going to be like? And that, that sounds really paranoid, but it's not what I, I meant as like someone who was like also like a social worker. Like, I'm just intrigued to be like, to just to kind of know like how someone else would and record and chronicle seen. this. Exactly. Right. So it's <laughs> so just like the, having that sort of aspect of it. It's, it's infinitely interesting to me. I think I think I gave you three titles, Making Ideas Happen. And it, the book is about how to, I'm such a, I'm a person that has like a zillion and one ideas, but has like, ch- has a challenge to like actually make them and keep them and, and you know, um, sort of like nurture them into fruition. Mm-hmm. It's easy so, to have ideas, but it's hard to act on ideas. So, right. And completely so, yeah. And so, and I'm also a person that just is very much in my head. So taking it out of my head and putting it into or something that I have just in general, because I'm always like thinking about the processes behind it, right? So making ideas happen was really, really helpful and really, really instrumental in actually making this podcast happen. Um, so it's, it's, it's a big deal. Kinda, yeah, it's a great book. So I, I enjoyed that book. And I don't know, I think I didn't, I don't think I have a last one. Four is a good number. Four is a good number. Four is a good round number. Anyway, one last question before we wrap up. You have Asperger's, which is, as you were explaining to me earlier, disorder within the autism spectrum. Is that right? And so I wanted to ask you about having, being on the spectrum or having Asperger's and how it is, how you've experienced Derby with autism, because I I feel like I know of a few people who have autism and play Mm -hmm. Derby. And so it's like just kind of another curiosity that I've had. So if you don't mind me asking you. (laughs) I definitely don't mind. 
I like to talk about it because a lot of our, when we think of like a person with autism, we always think about children and we usually think about boys. So to be an adult with autism and a woman, I think it's important to like say, yeah, I have autism. We are here. It doesn't magically go away once you hit adulthood or something. Were you a child um, when you were diagnosed or was it more recently? Actually, no, I was an adult and it's kind of funny because I was um, I was getting my teaching credential and I was a student teacher and my mentor teacher, her name is Shannon Questionberry and we're still friends was actually in the process of getting her daughter assessed for autism. So like a week into being in her classroom, she's like, hey, can I ask you a couple questions? And I was like, uh, yeah. And she's like, do you feel like you're, you know, watching your life like a movie in the third person? And I was like, um, maybe. And she like hit me with a couple of these diagnostic questions. And I was just like, what? She's like, I think you have Asperger's. And I was like, I, that doesn't seem right. But then I went home and I read up on it and I was like, oh my God, I do have autism. <laughs> like, and it just is one of those things where once I learned about it, I was like, this makes a lot of sense because and I was in my early 20s, so, and for reference, I'm 33 now, so not that long ago, really. But especially when I was in college, I just thought I was, like, weird or crazy, maybe. I just, my connection to the world is, I don't know, felt tenuous sometimes. And so to understand, like, oh, this is a documented thing, this is what I have, it really helped me kind of situate myself in the world and a lot more confident. I mean, not that I was unconfident before, but now I'm kind of obnoxiously confident. <laughs> so after that, a couple, about a year or two later, I ended up going to some a doctor who's an expert in autism to see about a formal diagnosis. So she talked to me for a couple hours and she also called my parents because autism is considered a developmental disability. So she wanted to hear about my childhood. And then she's like, yeah, you have Asperger's. And she also diagnosed me with anxiety, which was very good to know as well, because with autism, you kind of, it's hard to read other people and their intentions. So it's like you're moving through the world, not knowing what to expect, which can lead to anxiety. So I know before you were also asking about kind of like Asperger's and autism, what's the difference? Mm -hmm. Please. I can go. Yes. So... Currently, Asperger's doesn't technically exist according to the DSM anymore. It's all autism spectrum disorder. But, I mean, Asperger's still exists in terms of, like, a constellation of, I don't know, traits or symptoms. So it was first observed during World War II. There was a doctor, I think, named Hans Asperger in Vienna or somewhere, and he had a clinic, and they a lot of boys with this set of traits were coming to him where they're like very intelligent, uh, hyper-focused on certain things, but like low social skills, you know, kind of need guidance on that day-to-day, how to live stuff. And they were often described as like being a little professor, like when you have a kid who seems way too smart and wants to talk to the adults. Um, so it started out as diagnosis just for boys because patriarchy. Um, but eventually kind of got expanded into women, of course, because women do have autism. So it's just, it's one aspect of autism where in contrast to, you know, some people with autism are can be totally nonverbal or like limited verbal skills. People with Asperger's more likely to be hyperverbal, might learn to read early and tend to have really focused interests. And then of course they have traits and there's Asperger's as traits in common with the rest of autism spectrum disorder, which includes like um, usually 
sensitivity to the environment. So everyone is a little different. Like you might have a hard time with loud noises or crowds or certain textures. Like for me, there are some food textures that I just won't eat. Like I hate slimy kind of foods. Or my husband, Mr. Stone, who doesn't formally have autism, like he cannot stand crowds or really loud noises hurt his ears, which I know loud noises hurt everyone's ears, but his threshold is a lot different. So stuff like that. (laughs) Thank you. And as you were talking and you're giving your explanation, we kind of went full circle because, you know, invisible women and how the symptoms were first identified for men and then women. (laughs) Anyhow, um, as a derby athlete and as a skater, were you, were you always athletic or was skating your first? Uh, I, I know I don't think of myself as always being athletic, but I did do um, active stuff when I was growing up. I didn't really play sports. I played soccer one year when I was in kindergarten, and I hated it. And my parents would be on the sidelines like, "Run! You have to run!" <laughs> so that makes me laugh to this day, as you can see. Um, but my what I did do growing up is my hometown of Redlands, California has a youth and community circus that it runs through that runs through the YMCA so like some kids play sports after school I went to circus after school and I was a unicyclist and juggled and did acrobatics and stuff like that how could I forget that was another thing that I was like super uber (laughs) impressed about you (laughs) it's like you're so amazing (laughs) yeah I think People, you probably, I don't know if I saw you at the right Del Ball roller call or not, but I actually brought my unicycle um, this year because the theme of the Rydell party was circus. And I was like, well, this is my moment. So <laughs> I literally brought my unicycle. To you got to love roller and- con. <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So. This is my first like competitive sport, so that's different for me. Mm. Um, and it's the last couple of years, it's been a really like a paradigm shift for me in terms of thinking of myself as an athlete. And in terms of like autism, I think for me, it's been very hard to develop like a sense of body. I guess uh, proprioception is the technical term where like you know where you are in space mm. and understand what your body is doing. So for a long time, I just kind of considered myself an intellectual, like, oh, my pursuits are in my brain, but your brain is part of your body. (laughs) Fun Mm -hmm. fact. Mm -hmm. Um, So with Derby for me, it's a little, it's a little hard to like know where I am sometimes. It's like, get to the line. And I'm like, am I not, am I not there? What am I doing? Like, I don't, sometimes it's really hard to just know what my body is doing. And it's usually like if we learn a new drill or we're doing a new drill or trying something new, I usually have to watch a few times because I'll hear the explanation and it doesn't necessarily connect for me. So it's a little tricky to learn new skills. And I'm also very literal. So sometimes if I get frustrated at practice, if a coach is giving shitty directions, (laughs) 
because I'm literally, and also my day job, as I said, I'm, I'm an editor and a technical writer. So I think a lot about how to communicate effectively and like how to explain how to do stuff. And so you're super so mindful of that. Yeah. And so if I get to practice. Practice. Yeah. So sometimes in practice, the coach is like, here's what we're going to do. And I'm like, to what end? Like, what are we, what, what do you want us to get out of this? Like, what specifically do you want me to do? Like, I'll get kind of faulty with coaches sometimes, but they're like, not to be too much of a dick, but sometimes, you know, you have a male coach who doesn't actually skate hmm. and they'll be telling you things like, you need to get to the line faster. And so then I'll be like, how do you want me to do that? Shall I fly? Shall I? Uh, yeah, what do you want? So just, I think that is a little bit of an awesome behavior, but probably just a little bit of my personality. Do you, is there, do you find that Derby is sufficiently accessible for you and your needs? And mm-hmm. I don't want to make you the, the spokesperson in all capital letters of autism. <laughs> so. No, it's okay. I think, for me, it is, but I'm also, you know, pretty, I guess, high-functioning is the term, even though I don't everyone's know different. that I like that term. Right. Yeah, I mean, everyone's different. Well, it can be hard. Long events are hard for me. So, like, if I go to a tournament, so far I've really only been to tournaments to announce. I always make sure to get my own room because, mm. my own hotel room, because after being at the venue all day, I just like really need nobody to look at or talk to me for a little while, just because it's a lot to take in. And events are very loud, but you can wear headphones and stuff like that. But accessibility, I don't know, it's hard to say because it is, you know, autism is a little bit different for everyone. And I could definitely see like, there are probably some autistic people who would never consider playing roller derby because it's like a lot of touching and sweating. And, you know, it just, it depends on your brand of autism, I think. Mm-hmm. But as with most disabilities, I think the stuff that helps people with autism helps everybody, like giving clear instructions and explaining a little bit of like what you want skaters to get out of certain drills or things that are usually hard for people with autism are like when there's a system, but it's hidden. So I know one example that's come up at RollerCon is people being like, you know, when you're there and there are all the challenge games, some people know that you can go talk to the captain before a game and say, hey, are there any open spots on your roster? But if you didn't know that system existed or you're like not comfortable just like walking up and being like, hey, put me in your game, that's the kind of thing that could be a barrier. You know, anytime it's like low context, I think it's hard for people with autism. That makes sense. I never even thought of that. My self-care tip is to get off the internet, which I kind of said earlier, but I think for me, anytime I'm like making something or doing something in the physical world, like that's a really good form of self-care. And I think that's why, as you've seen on my Instagram, you know, I'm, I bake a lot or I like to cook food. Just, just kind of like to reconnect yourself with the earth instead of like getting mad about people yelling on Twitter, which again, I know it sounds like I'm personally calling you out, but I'm actually talking about myself. <laughs> and now you're reading my thoughts. How dare you? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Yep. I'm, a I'm a pretty rude that one day. So my, that's, my self-care is just do something that has like a physical result in the world. So, you know, make food or gardening or take a walk or pet your cat. You know, I think that 
it really helps to like ground ground yourself. So that, that's my self care advice. And for MVPs, I have two MVPs because I gotta be extra. So um, at the time of this recording, it's Thanksgiving this week. So one thing I've started making a tradition for me as of last year anyway is to make a donation to uh, groups that promote indigenous food sovereignty and like indigenous food ways because I like Thanksgiving because I like cooking and eating, but I also recognize like is a result of colonialism and that in our indigenous people don't really appreciate Thanksgiving. Um, so this year I'm going to be donating to the North American traditional indigenous food systems, which um, promotes indigenous food ways and education for indigenous people. So that's one MVP. And my other MVP is Derby Twitter. <laughs> uh, even though I said get off Twitter, um, I just, I love the conversations that happen there and it's fun to like connect with everyone all over the Derby world and just be able to chat with people. I think that's really awesome. So those are my MVPs, the national or North American traditional indigenous food systems and hashtag Derby Twitter. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, you're one of the highlights of Derby Twitter. You make it, what it oh, is, a great, thank you. colorful place. You are too. You tweet all the time <laughs> and you have such good things to say. Thanks. And you're saying important stuff. I will heed your call, though, to get off internets because I could definitely benefit from your advice for sure. <laughs> I'm going to next time I'm going to like maybe like make this on the loop and put it on my phone. Stop mindless <laughs> scrolling. Nothing is going to come of it. All right, folks, well, there you have it. Holding Space with Magical Wheelism is available on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube. Help the pod grow by subscribing and sharing it with friends. Rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts also helps others find us. Follow the pod on Instagram at Holding Space with Magic Pod. Intro and outro music is by Sun Searcher. The song is called Latin Rhythm. And the cover photo is by James Corbett of Epic Life Images. Find him at Epic Life Images on Instagram. See you next time. Bye.